like when uh, Omar comes on the screen, we're about to see an Old Spice commercial. <laughs> Hello, ladies. You want your man to look like me? Um, good morning, everybody, especially those of you at our, our, our other campuses. Uh, one of the things that I love about that video, uh, about that testimony, is um, one of the goals here at our church, um, if you don't know this, is that we equip you to be able to do the work of the ministry. And what you heard in that video is stories of people who uh, not just came here to receive pastoral counseling, but were ministered to by various ones of our members. And, uh, you know, I've, the stories like that that you heard, I've heard multiplied um, dozens of times. Uh, we've got uh, small groups, that a uh, number of them, that are using the gospel-centered marriage resources that our counseling team has provided um, to do their own marriage retreats. Uh, there are college students who are using the false love seminar materials to do um, studies in their, in their dorm rooms. We have uh, mom, mothers in our church who have experienced the pain of a, um, a miscarriage who are using um, some of the things from the grief seminar uh, to be able to minister to other mothers um, outside of our church who are going through that same um, kind of pain. It is in the brokenness of life that the gospel sometimes speaks the most clearly. Um, when somebody goes through a broken marriage, when somebody goes through a personal difficulty or a chapter of pain, and God uses that to get their attention, which is, is what makes what I'm about to um, announce to you um, so very exciting for us. Um, through, the, through the direction of our pastoral counselor, Brad Hambrick, this September, um, we are launching a new nonprofit ministry out of the Summit Church called the Bridgehaven Counseling Associates. Now, on your way in, you should have received a brochure that tells you about this new nonprofit. Um, it, the goal is really for this to, to do two things. The first one is to provide excellent biblical gospel-centered counseling on a donation basis. The, um, the, the other goal of this is to equip the body of Christ, uh, not just us as the Summit Church, but the body of Christ in Raleigh-Durham to be able to better, um, to be able to minister to people that are in our lives with the, um, with the healing power of the gospel. Every single one of us in this room has a number of people in our um, circles that live in our neighborhoods, that go to work with us, that go to school with us, who are in the midst of some pain. And it is in that moment that if we know how to take the gospel and say, this is how God speaks to your pain, that, that we can be perhaps more effective than we could in any other dimension. And this, you know, the goal of this is to equip us to be able to do that. Um, so uh, that's going to be launching off this September. Um, in your worship guide, you'll see on the very bottom of it, there's a little thing that you can tear off that will tell you how you could specifically be involved um, in that counseling center. So I want you to make sure that you take a look at that and you can turn it in if, um, if it applies to you at the end of our service here. Um, you can look at that after I get done preaching, not while I'm preaching, because you know how ADD I am and how my feelings get hurt when you do other things while I preach. So um, don't do that right now because it will hurt my feelings. Um, I really am grateful. I really am grateful, and I hope you are too, for um, just the unbelievable counseling, um, wonderful counseling team that God has brought here to our church um, through Omar and through uh, Pastor Brad and others. Um, they really are, I would call them wonderful counselors, but I think that title's already taken, so let's just say that they are absolutely and totally excellent, all right? Um, if you got your Bible today, I want you to take it and open it to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, I uh, really hope that you um, do have your Bible. I know that for some of you, especially you're new here, you may not have it, and that's fine, but uh, for those of you that, that are come on a regular basis, I hope you get that. You know what I, I've learned? Um, I've been in church most of my life, and so I've heard a lot of bad sermons um, I've preached a lot of bad sermons, and I know that um, if, you know, if, if your Bible is open, 
then even if I totally miss, God has a chance to speak to you right through his word if it's right there in front of you. Uh, so I hope that you do that. Like I told you a few weeks ago, studying the Bible without a Bible is kind of like playing tennis without a ball. Just way too much is left to your imagination. So I hope that you have that. Um, we have been in Hebrews tw- uh, 12. Um, that's the passage we read earlier this morning. There has been one driving theme throughout the book of Hebrews, and that is that you find an anchor for your faith. It's like I've explained to you each week, the people that the writer is addressing are in a storm of doubt, and they are struggling because faith for them is difficult. Persecution that they're encountering is severe. Temptations are acute. They've got unanswered prayers. They've got unanswered questions. So many of you have come up to me during this series and said, I have felt like the book of Hebrews is written to me. Because, you know, you started off at one point where you thought everything, everything made sense, this abundant life, and man, you felt full of God, and it was this emotional high, but things are difficult for you. Um, It is difficult for you to believe. It is difficult for you to continue to follow. And so many of you have told me, it's like, this is, I feel like I'm in that kind of chapter right now where I am barely hanging on to my faith by a thread because believing is hard. Scholars think that Hebrews was originally delivered as one long sermon, and what you've got there in front of you is like the sermon transcript. Uh, You thought I preached a long time uh, in dense sermons. Uh, The writer of Hebrews totally takes the cake on that. Um, Well, if that is true, and I think it is, um, then what you've got in chapter 12 is you've got the the, the crescendo of the the sermon. You've got the conclusion. You could really put the words in conclusion there at the beginning of chapter 12, Um, And then he does what I do. He concludes about four times and it takes about 30 minutes. Uh, But but what you see is that he is kind of bringing everything to a head. Um, He is starting his application points. He is bringing it home. He's on a roll. And what he starts to do is tie up all these themes that he has brought out in the book of Hebrews. In the text that was read earlier, you heard the image of searching for a city, searching for a kingdom. That's the image that the writer has used throughout Hebrews, especially in these final chapters. It's a metaphor that he is using for what we are all doing with our lives, searching for a city. You see, a city to these people represented a place of safety, a place of permanence, and a place of prosperity. Deeply embedded in the Hebrew memory was their experience as nomads when they wandered for years in the wilderness after they left Egypt. They left Egypt in search of a promised land, a promised land with a city that would belong to them where they could settle, where they could raise their children in peace and prosperity, a city where they could dwell forever. Throughout the Old Testament, all of their hopes centered on Jerusalem, or literally, the city of peace. That's what it means. They were, they, 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 all their hopes were on the shalom, the Jerusalem, the, 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 the place where peace would reign. Well, in a sense, the writer says, we're all searching for a city like that, aren't we? Well, aren't we searching for a place of permanence, Peace, prosperity, fulfillment. Isn't that why you're working so hard to get the degree or get the job? Isn't that why you're saving your money? Isn't that why you're trying to make sure you got plenty to send your kids to the college they need? Isn't that why you want to get married and have a family? You want a city, a Jerusalem. You want a permanent place of peace and prosperity and fulfillment. Now, maybe that doesn't connect to you at all. Maybe you're like, I hate the city. Traffic, noise, people. I want me a mountain cabin with a dog where I sit and my kids grow up and build little cabins around mine. I sit out on a porch and think about how quiet it is out here, right? I mean, maybe, just out of curiosity, how many of you are like, I'm totally a city person. I want to be where the activity is. I love the city. Raise your hand, all right? If you're like, nope, I'm the one who likes a mountain cabin. I don't like people. I want to be out away from everybody. Raise your hand. 
Um, just for you know, the record, I, I don't think Raleigh Durham is the best place for you if uh, if you're in that latter category. But um, in a way, if you're in that latter category, in a way, it's kind of I mean that's kind of like your own little city is what you desire. You know, just it's just filled with people that are related to you. That's the only people you want there. But it's still a place of security. It's still a place of peace and a place of fulfillment. So this idea of searching for a city is is something he uses for all of us because that's really what we all are doing. We're searching for that. So what he does is he does three things with that in the last chapter. Three things, three, three things with that image. The first thing he does is he asks you to consider what your city is and whether or not it is shakable. Then he shows you, secondly, the results of Jesus being your city. And then thirdly, he warns you about some small things that can totally destroy your city. So that's how we're going to proceed this morning. Um, you're going to ask, what is your city and is it shakable? Number two, what happens when Jesus is your city? And then lastly, the things that can destroy your city. So here we go. Number one, what is your city and is it shakable? What is your primary source, in other words, of permanence, security, and peace? What are the things you most look to to provide you with permanent security, fulfillment, and peace? Now, these are questions that I present all the time here at the Summit Church because they are the most fundamental questions of your life. And it is amazing how many people go through life without ever asking these most basic questions. Where are you going? What's your trajectory? Why are you here? Why are you searching what you're searching for? What do you actually think it will provide for you? And will it work? Your answers to this question is what drives you. What is your city? Each of you, every one of you in here has chosen a course of life, whether it was conscious or subconscious, you have chosen a course of life that you think will make you happy, that will provide you with the peace and permanence and prosperity that you crave. Like I said earlier, when you're younger, it's getting the degree or getting the job or finding a good marriage or having children. When you're older, it's having enough money in the bank so that you don't have to worry about the future. Some of you are dissatisfied with your marriage because you always wanted it to provide that place where you were cherished and accepted and fulfilled, and it's just not doing it. So you want out. The invitation of Hebrews is to make God your primary source of these things, that he would be your primary security, that he would become your identity, your fulfillment, that he be the foundation of your city so that in him you have the peace and permanence and fulfillment that you crave, whether or not you have those secondary things like the job and the bank account and the marriage and the children. So to that end, he gives you two warnings. The first one is in verse 26. Look at this. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. I will shake not only the earth, I'm going to shake the heavens, there are two ways that you can, you, you can shake something and have two different meanings, right? Um, one thing is you can shake it up, like you know, make it exciting, like a party or a Mountain Dew bottle or something like that. Um, the other way that you shake is when you remove, like an earthquake, where everything that's not tied into the foundation gets removed, the way you would shake out a blanket, you know, to get rid of the, um, the, the, the debris and stuff on it. That's the kind of shaking he's talking about, that latter kind. And that is happening all around us, is it not? When the stock market crashed in 2008, there were these the string of suicides among Wall Street executives, people who'd made more money in a year than most of us would ever make in a lifetime. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac hanged himself in his basement. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's leading families, royal families, lost 1.4 billion of his clients' money and slid his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. 
A senior executive with the HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his $750 a night suite in Knightsbridge, London. Many of you have gone through, maybe, you know, not something that involved $1.4 billion, but you've lost your job. Your marriage is starting to fall apart. You, you, you lost your retirement. Something happened and, and you got shaken. Sometimes it happens through disease. Some of you know how the entire outlook of your life suddenly changes in a matter of seconds when a doctor walks into an office and tells you that you or your wife has breast cancer. The ultimate shaking, of course, is death. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told a story about a man who truly had nothing to worry about, at least by our estimation. His business was going so well that the only problem he had was the barns he had to keep all of his treasures in were too small. So he had to tear down his barns and build bigger barns. It's kind of like the bank calling you up and being like, hey, we are out of room for your money. we got to have a bigger bank. That would be a nice change to get a call from a bank like that, would it not? As opposed to, you, sir, you are overdrawn. Um, you'd be like, we, we are out of room for your money. That, 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 that was this guy's only problem. His family all lived around him, and you know, they all loved him, and he had everything he'd ever hoped for, and he's got the retirement, he's got the kids, he's got everything. And Jesus said, God looks at him at night and says, you fool. You fool, because tonight you're going to die, and not a thing that you have surrounded yourself with is going to accompany you. Your soul and where it stands with me is the only thing that matters, and you are not prepared for that, and you are entering into eternity stripped bare of everything. When you die, that is the ultimate shaking, because there is nothing on earth that you have accomplished, that you take with you. It is simply a matter of where you stand with God. God is shaking the earth, the writer says, and he will do it again. And everything that is not built upon him as a foundation will fall away. Then it leads you to a second thing, verse 29, a second warning. You see where he says, our God is a consuming fire? That's a common image for God throughout the Bible. And the Bible uses that image to, to give us a picture of God burning away everything that is impure or unclean, consuming it. Um, the way, you know, you, you might think... Um, the way they used to purify silver, where they would run it through the fire so that all the impurities would burn away and the only thing that would be left are is that which is pure, pure silver. The, the last day in scripture is depicted as that kind of, 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 of passing through fire. First Corinthians 3 says on the last day, each one's work will become manifest. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones or wood and hay and straw, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Y'all, that is a sobering reality for me, because that means that everything that I have accomplished, the things that people look and say, wow, you have done this or that, the question becomes with God is, what, what was the motive for doing that? Was that done for the honor and glory of God, or was it done for the honor and glory of J.D.? Because you might be impressed with something that God knows that it wasn't about thy kingdom come, it was about my kingdom come. On that day, every single action we have done, every motive we've had, is tested before the all-consuming eye of God. And what, it's like my father used to tell me, a phrase that I remember from childhood, only one life to live will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. That day, if this is true, that day is the most important one in your entire eternity. Everything is shaken. Everything. Everything goes through the fire. Are you ready for that day? God is shaking and will shake the earth, and he is a purifying fire. He's shaking some of you right now. And I know that some of you may not understand exactly why he is doing it, but I'm telling you, it is mercy in your life. 
because he's trying to wake you up. You see, if your life is built on a faulty foundation, then it is God's kindness to show you that before it is too late. I talked with a professional athlete once who had had a career-ending injury, and he confided to me, he said, he said, I just don't understand why God would let this happen. In just a matter of a few seconds, everything I'd hoped for and dreamed for and worked for, gone in a matter of seconds. Now, this guy was not a Christian, or at least he wasn't a practicing Christian at this time. And I told him, I said, you know, when you think about it, your sports career, even if you made millions of dollars and even if you became the best in the world, it's nothing in light of eternity. A much more terrible thing, a much greater tragedy would be to stand in eternity and look back at your whole life and say, I threw away my eternity for a few years of fame on earth. I told him that if God had to take away his career from him to show him that he was building it on a faulty foundation before it was eternally too late, then it was one of the greatest kindnesses God could ever do to him. For some of you, God is shaking you now. Your marriage is falling apart. Your bank account just got rocked. Your health is deteriorating. And that is mercy to you. It's mercy because you have falsely trusted in these things and God is shaking them. He is arousing you out of slumber to show you that the only foundation that will survive that final shaking and the consuming fire is the foundation of Jesus Christ. And if you use this chapter of difficulty, if you use this chapter of difficulty in your life to reestablish your trust in him, then the darkest chapter of your life could become the turning point of your eternity and the greatest moments you ever had on earth. That is how God takes tragedy and turns it into triumph because he uses tragedy sometimes to wake you up, to show you that everything that you build your life on apart from him ultimately falls apart. Here's the second thing. When Jesus is your city, right? So we, who is your city? And then secondly, when Jesus is your city. In the middle of this passage, the writer goes off on what almost seems like a tangent. He starts talking about Moses and a smoking mountain, and you're like, what? You know, in fact, your mind probably wandered a few minutes ago when, when we were doing the scripture reading and we got to that part, you're like, I don't even understand what this is about, so you, your mind just checked out. Um, you know, I've told you before that um, when you approach the Bible, you ought to assume that it's written by a highly intelligent being, and he doesn't just throw stuff in there randomly just to go off on a tangent because he's thinking about it. There's a purpose that he says those things, and that is a very key key thing that he puts out there because what he's trying to show you is he's trying to show you why Jesus is the only real lasting city. Okay, so here's the story. Here's the story. Israel had been called to the promised land. They were searching for a city. So they left Egypt, and they're going through the wilderness, and before they go into the promised land, they come to this mountain that is consumed with fire and smoke and darkness and lightning and thunder because the presence of God is on this mountain. And God tells them to set up a perimeter around that mountain and says that if anybody, man, woman, or child, or even animal, crosses that line, they will be killed. It was so terrifying, verse 21, there in Hebrews 12, says that even Moses was terrified. And Moses wasn't the kind to get scared a lot anymore. The message was clear. A sinful people can't be in the presence of a holy God. If they even touch God's holiness as sinful people, they would be killed. That's several times throughout the Old Testament you see that. Sinful people cannot be in the presence of God. It's like a tissue paper touching the surface of the sun. So their dilemma is, follow this, they've left Egypt in search of a city, a city that God will give them. Here they come to the promised land, 
and here is the presence of God, and the dilemma is, how do we find the permanence and joy and fulfillment that only comes from knowing God and living in his land if we're too sinful to even be in his presence? So they lived in a state of fear. What if we haven't been good enough? What if he is not pleased with us? What if, what if we have not done enough for him? Now, even for those of you who aren't particularly religious, this is deep, so hang with me, all right? Ultimately, what you are most searching for in all of your pursuits of life, what you're searching for is a kind of divinity. You want ultimate satisfaction. You want a security that can't be taken away. You're looking for a pleasure that fully satisfies. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, um, said, even the man who knocks at a door of a brothel is searching for God. Even the man that visits the prostitute is searching for God. He is looking for a fulfillment and a satisfaction that is divine, that he finally gets a hold of some kind of beauty or some kind of pleasure, and he says, that's it, that's it right there. This is what I've wanted, this fulfills me to my core. Well, as you approach whatever mountain or whatever city represents your ultimate satisfaction, be that family, be that job, be that retirement, whatever, whatever you, whenever you approach that, you encounter the same dilemma. What if you're not good enough to obtain what you need? What if you fail? What if something takes it away? What if you don't make the grade? What if you lose the sale? What if your body gets sick? What if your retirement's tank? What if your family members start making bad decisions that you can't control? What if your husband gets seduced by some sleazy girl at work and you can't do anything about it? And your marriage falls apart through no fault of your own. And what happens is your life begins to be dominated by fear, worry. You worry all the time about, about what's gonna happen jealousy begins to, to be a major part of, of your life. You're looking at people who have what you want and you think you deserve. Bitterness, when you don't get what you think you deserve or what you've always wanted and you feel like you're powerless to get it. Self-doubt, the same emotions they felt there as they approached that mountain or what you feel. Jesus, the writer says, is the better city because he's the only sure city. Look at this, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to Jesus, verse 24. You see, watch it. Jesus' crucifixion bore an eerie similarity, an eerie similarity to Mount Sinai. Jesus' crucifixion occurred on top of a small mountain. There was darkness all around, just like there was on that mountain that he's referring to. The rock split, there was an earthquake, there was lightning and thunder Lightning flashed and thunder rolled. He, he was absorbing, Jesus was absorbing the judgment of the sinful people in the presence of a holy God. We had crossed the perimeter. We had violated God's holiness, but instead of us being struck dead for it, Jesus was struck dead for it. So that now when we approach God, we do so without fear because anything that, I, that could ever make God reject me was put upon Jesus and he was rejected for me. He took my sin and I was given his righteousness. He was shaken for me. So that now my foundation is absolutely secure. It is unshakable because my foundation is his righteousness. Verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Oh, what a great phrase. You remember the story of Cain and Abel in the Bible? So Cain kills his brother Abel. And God says, Cain, where's your brother? Cain's like, I don't know. And God says, what do you mean you don't know? Cain, his blood cries out to me from the ground for vengeance. Your murdered brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground saying you have sinned and I must avenge it. We murdered Jesus. 
But his blood cries out from the ground, not for our vengeance. His blood cries out for our forgiveness. The gospel gives you God and all of his blessings and all of his promises as a gift, not because you deserve them, but because Christ has purchased them for you, because Christ was shaken for you, because Christ took the vengeance for you. They're not given to you according to your merits, but they're given to you as a gift of grace, which is so counterintuitive for, for us that that's why many of you have never understood the gospel. It's because all your life, everything in life comes according to what you deserve. I mean, it's, it's that way in school, right? Your professor doesn't walk in and say, hey, you know, you've done a really bad job, you're a bad student, you're lazy, A, I'm giving you an A just because I'm gracious. That usually doesn't happen. Your boss doesn't come in and say, you're a total slacker, you're always late, you don't do your job right, you get a raise. In most of life, you get what you deserve, but not this one, because we could never deserve the acceptance of God. We could never deserve the city of God. So God gives it to us as a gift purchased by Christ, not as a reward for what we have earned. See, the ways that you have tried to attain divinity, the ways that you have tried to secure a city of permanence and fulfillment and peace have left you insecure and unstable and fearful. But when Jesus is your city, when Jesus and his gift righteousness are your city, the writer of Hebrews says, it gives you the opposite of all those things. Instead of instability, it gives you, A, security. See verse 28, a city that cannot be shaken? Your city is stable because the foundations of that city are the gift righteousness of Christ and the unchangeable promises of God. Instead of, instead of, of worry, it gives you, B, unbounded joy. Unbounded joy. See verse 22 where it says innumerable angels in festal gathering? Some of you are like, I don't, well, I don't even know what that means. Scholars say, you could really read that, angels in party clothes. Seriously. You come into the company, a bunch of angels in party clothes. God's presence is like a gigantic party. I know, which totally messes up some of the images of what you think heaven will be like. You know, sitting on a cloud in a diaper playing a harp. Um, that's not, every time God gives us a glimpse of what eternity is like, it seems like a party. Revelation depicts um, eternity as, as the ultimate wedding reception. Jesus' first miracle on earth was to fix the broken tap at a party. The foundation of that party is, the foundation of that joy is the perfect love of God in Christ. It is a joy without fear. It is a joy without pain. It is a joy without worry because Christ has given us full acceptance through his blood. He has given us absolute security in his promises and he has given us full and final healing in his resurrection. So there is no reason in the presence of God to not have anything but overwhelming joy because all that you've ever hoped, all that you've ever dreamed, all that you were created for has been given to you in a way that can never be taken away. Instead of worry, you have unbounded joy. Instead of, instead of the fear of terror, you have the fear of worship. See, that's also verse 28. Worship in reverence and awe. Some of your translations say fear. Worship in reverence and fear. This kind of fear is not the kind of fear that the Israelites felt before the mountain, there's a, there's a contrast being set up. They, they were shaking because they were terrified. But remember in Christ we can't be shaken, so he's not talking about a fear where you shake, you, you shake in fear. This is a fear more like what a child fears or how a child feels about a good father. Kids have this thing where they think their daddy is the strongest person in the world. My, my, my kids every once in a while will make a statement to that effect. Uh, Allie, my, my seven year old the other day was like, Daddy, was Samson as strong as you? And I'm Probably not, you know, but he was close. He was close. <laughs> By the way, I figured out when my nine-year-old, the honeymoon stage of, 
of fathering is totally over. My nine-year-old, we were watching the Olympics, and it was some, you know, a male gymnast doing something. I was like, hey, you think I could do that? She was like, not a chance, Dad. Not a chance. There ain't no way. Um, so we're out of that. But when kids are young, a child has a, has a fear of their parent, but it's not a fear of terror. It's, it's, it's awe, yes, but it's combined with an incredible intimacy. I mean, my kids may have been in, in awe of how large I seem to them, but they've always felt enough intimacy and security that without hesitation, they come and crawl in bed with me at night when it's thundering. Now, I would dare say that there's nobody in the world in this room that feels that kind of intimacy with me. At least I hope not. Um, I don't feel it with you for you just to, you know, hop in bed like I'm scared. Um, you know, that, that, that is an intimacy that my children have that, yes, they might think that I'm the strongest man in the world, and they might be in awe of that, but it's combined with an intimacy that makes them run into my presence. That's my favorite definition of worship, by the way. Awe mixed with intimacy. Awe mixed with intimacy. Do you feel that way about God? Do you feel like he is so massively awesome that you could run to him and call him daddy? That he feels your pain, that he cares about you. See, you were created for that kind of worship. You were created for awe mixed with intimacy. That's what you loved in your daddy if you had a good one. And that's what you longed for in your daddy if you had a bad one. But see, your earthly daddy was just a shadow, an echo of your heavenly daddy. So he shows you that these things that you most crave, security, stability, permanence, joy, awe, and intimacy, these things are only found in the city that is Jesus. He is the only God we're serving. I love how Tim Keller says it. Jesus is the only God whom, when you find him, will satisfy you, and when you fail him, will forgive you. He's the only God that when you find him will satisfy you. All other gods, small g, when you actually find them, you end up finding they're not what you thought they would be and they're not nearly as stable as you thought they were. So that money does not provide the enjoyment that you thought it would. It doesn't provide the security you hoped it would. Your family, as awesome as they are, it just doesn't provide that permanence and fulfillment that sustains your soul. Jesus is the only God that when you find him will, 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 will fulfill you. And when you fail him, you see any other God, small g, that you serve, when you fail it, it curses you, right? I mean, you, you, it says if you don't make the grade, you don't get the job, you don't get the bank account, then you're cursed, you're going to be poor, you're going to be miserable. Jesus is the only God that when you fail him, he took the curse for you. So the acceptance is given not based on how well you did or how well you accomplished, it's given to you because he purchased it for you. He's the only God that when you find him will satisfy you and when you fail him will forgive you. That's what happens when Jesus is your city. Here's the third thing. Here's what can destroy your city. Here's what can destroy your city. You see, in these verses, he warns you against several things that can erode your faith. Now, here's the thing. Listen, they seem like pretty mundane things, which I think is really significant. Because for most of you, listen, for most of you, the danger to your faith is not some big cataclysmic event where you, you read a book by Richard Dawkins called The God Delusion and you totally lose your faith. That, that might happen to a few of you, but for most of you, that's not the danger. The danger is the slow, gradual dulling of your heart toward God. You slowly lose your capacity for faith. Think of it like um, termites in your house. You know, you, you go for years and, and you're just not even thinking about it. You, know, you don't hear anything, you don't sense anything, then somebody comes to your house, does an inspection, and hands you a bill for $15,000. Because all that time, there was this thing that was just being eroded, and there was irreparable damage being done to your house, and you had no idea. 
What happens, the writer says, for most of you is not this major event. It's just the slow eroding of your capacity to see and perceive God. Here they are. I think there are five total. Division. That's verse 14. Seek peace with all men. You see, division and strife have a way of making you forget all about Christ as your city. Because when you go through division, your pride gets riled up. And you forget it's about Jesus. You think so, I think it's about you. Uh, a case in point right here. Um, you know, I will, will leave this place. I will be full of the Spirit. I'll be totally in love with Jesus. Somebody does the wrong thing to me out there in that road, and it's not about Jesus anymore. It's all about me. It just has a way of totally distracting you off of that city onto your own. To seek peace means that you are the first one to offer forgiveness even when you're the one that were wronged. Because it's not about avenging yourself, it's about glorifying Jesus. It means taking the towel, like Christ did, and you wash the feet of those in conflict with you. You want to renew your faith? You want to find out what it's really about for you? Take the people that have offended you and that have bothered you, and you go to them and you metaphorically wash their feet. You serve your enemies, you seek their blessing. And that renews your commitment to Christ's city and takes the focus off of your own. A friend of mine told me a story a few weeks ago. He's a missionary in um, a country in Africa. And uh, he said that um, there was a lady in his community whose husband died and she was completely impoverished. So his family allowed this lady to live um, in their house. Um, he said that uh, he said she was trying to scrape up money together to be able to purchase a, a place to live, a little plot of land. Um, she was very poor, so it was taking her a long time. She said, he said, well, the city government um, would do this thing about once a month where they would do a lottery and they would give away a couple plots of land. He said, well, she wanted a plot of land right in our, in our neighborhood, so she went every month for two years and applied to this lottery, and every time she, 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 she wasn't chosen. He said, I came home one day, it was middle of the afternoon, he said, and she was dancing around the yard um, doing something, and he said, I could tell she was really, really happy, and she had her hand on her shoulder um, while she danced with a piece of paper, which in their culture meant that something was really heavy on her, and uh, he goes, he's like, what's going on? And she holds that piece of paper up, she's like, I got it, I got the lottery. I'm going to have my own, my own place. And so, um, yeah, so she gets this little piece of property. She scrapes up some money. He said she built a, a, just a, a, about a 10 by 10. I mean, just a shack. Had no electricity, no running water, but it was hers. And she spent all this time kind of decorating it. She finally had this house. Um, he said about three months later, he said, I came home one afternoon, and she's sitting out kind of in her front yard, which is only about the same size of her house, about 10 by 10. And uh, he said, she was just sitting there, and she had the, the most depressed look on her face. And I said, you know, what's, what's wrong? And she said, um, she, she kind of pointed over to the plot of ground next to her. She said, my neighbor, she says, his garden, he lets his garden grow about six inches every week onto my property. She says, it's just slowly encroaching. And, and, and this guy, um, he said, well, I mean, we can fix that right now. Let's just go over and talk to this guy. And she's like, no, no, don't do that. He said, look, he said, let's just go over. This is the American way. We'll have a little confrontation. He'll get his turnips out of your yard. She said, no, I don't want you to do that. He said, look, I don't even think you need to go. I'll go take care of it for you. And she said, do not go and confront this man. And he said, why? He said, I just, why would I not do that? And she said, because that man is sick. She said, that man is sick, and soon he will be in the hospital. And when he's in the hospital, I will go to visit him, and I cannot tell him about Jesus if I have argued with him about the land. Now, I'm not giving you a recommendation for how you do business, but I'm telling you that there are moments when you are wronged that the way that God renews your commitment to the city 
is by letting you take upon yourself the cross of Christ so that you suffer and you give blessing instead of cursing and you are renewed in the fact that it's more about him and not about you. Here's your second thing, worldliness. That's also in verse 14. So the first thing you had was division. Second thing is worldliness erodes that. See where he says pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Holiness means two different things in the Bible, two concepts. We've gone over this. Holiness, first of all, means purity. It's where we get our word wholeness from, holiness. And the other thing that holiness meant to the Jewish people was separated or other. That was literally what the word holiness meant in Hebrew, kadosh. Remember that? Isn't that like a great Hebrew word? Kadosh. It meant to be separated from. So when, some, when God, they said God was holy, it meant he was totally pure, and it meant he was totally other. So the opposite of holiness is worldliness, because worldliness implies impurity, and it implies things down here, things that are not other, things that are not bad in themselves, but just consume your mind so that you don't think about eternal, don't think about other, the other things. So he tells you to pursue holiness because without holiness, you will never see God. And see God there means see it with the eyes of faith. You'll never be able to see the glory of God on earth. You'll never be able to, watch this, You'll never be able to perceive what he's doing and what he's working. You'll never be able to perceive him when your heart is filled with worldliness. When your mind is saturated with the world, it is dulled to the purity and the beauty of God. Your ability to see God, your ability to have faith is inhibited. So he says, literally, pursue. In Greek, literally, persecute. Same word for persecute. Persecute holiness. Hunt it down like Jason Bourne. Track it relentlessly growing in holiness is an uphill climb it's like riding a bike you quit pedaling when you're going uphill you're not staying still you're going backwards you got to hunt it he says charles spurgeon you will never gain holiness by standing still nobody ever grew holy without agonizing to be holy sin will grow without sowing but holiness needs cultivation follow it it will not run after you you must pursue it with determination, with eagerness, with perseverance as a hunter pursues its prey. You have, to pers- you have to hunt it. It's not coming naturally. You have to discipline yourself to read the Bible. You don't hop out of bed and just think, oh, I'm just going to read the Bible today because I feel like it. Hey, newsflash, I don't feel like it a lot of times in the morning either. I hope that doesn't burst your bur- bubble about me as a pastor, but I don't always get up in the morning you know, singing Chris Tomlin songs on my heart. You know, and trying to find my Bible, I'm, I'm thinking, where's the coffee maker? And thinking about all the things that I got to do throughout that day. It takes discipline to read the Bible. It takes discipline to memorize Scripture. Discipline to read good books, to be in accountability groups where you confess your sins so that other people can confront you and show you where you need to grow. I am constantly listening to podcasts and sermons as I drive around. All right, not my own sermons, but like other people's sermons. Uh, although I will tell you this, um, <laughs> not too long ago, about every six months, I will listen to one of my own sermons just to hear what I sound like. It's always really depressing. And um, uh, so I'm listening to myself driving around, and it was kind of a you know, warm-ish day, so I had the windows down in my car. And when you're driving around the windows down, you've got to turn it up, right? So I, I have it up. I pull up at a stoplight. Okay, my windows are down. I look out the window, and there sits a summit member with their windows down looking at me, listening to myself at full volume. Okay, it was, I was like, this is not what it looks like. Um, but... Anyway, but, but it, I, I, that is a discipline to 
constantly saturate myself with the teaching of God, not because I don't like music, but because I know that, that I've got to pursue holiness. Some of you waste a colossal amount of time listening to some gibberish nonsense on 105.1 as you drive around. I'm not saying it's wrong in it, some of it's wrong in itself, but I'm not saying it's wrong in itself. I'm just saying that it's not pursuing, whole, it's not hunting it down. People ask me sometimes, how do you read so many books? You would be surprised what you can accomplish in 30 or 45 minutes every night if you turned off that stupid television and just got into something that would enrich your soul. You're like, well, I'm not a reader. Well, A, go to school and become one, okay? And B, if that really is true, then listen to podcasts or scripture on your iPod when you drive around. For most of you, the greatest enemy to your faith is not some cataclysmic event that messes up your faith. It is the slow rot of TV, Facebook, new cars, or toys. The enemy's primary, primary way of, of, of tearing you apart is not through, a, not through unbelief, it's through distraction. He just distracts you away from it. You will likely, here's the thing, most of you will likely continue to do Christian things. It's just too much in your culture to, to quit going to church altogether or quit believing in God. But you'll do it. You'll go through the motions without the soul of passion for God and the faith that pleases him. Pursue holiness because without that, nobody will actually see God. By the way, that verse also tells you, just in case this applies to you, that verse tells you that if you are one of those kind of people who feel like coming to church and and doing some God stuff, and then you go out from here, and got, you got a handful of things in your life that you know are wrong, you know are displeasing to God. You're like, well, I'm just going to do those anyway. You need to put up I the idea forever that God's okay, that that's how you live, and you come to church, and he thinks that that's okay, and you're just going to let you. Yes, God forgives all sin, but he forgives sins that have been repented of. And for you to live in open defiance of him, for you to acknowledge him with your lips and then defy him with your life, he says that kind of rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. You might as well leave this place and go worship Satan because that's how he sees it. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are from, from me. They, 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 you know, they, they sing, you know, the way that Christians tell lies, A.W. Tozer said, is they sing them. They honor me with their lips, but they go out and then the way they do business, the way they treat their spouse, the other relationships they have outside of their marriage are the things that crucify me. You actually think God is gonna be mocked like that? Like he's okay that you sing him songs on Sunday and defy him with your life? You, you have to pursue holiness because without that, nobody will see God. God forgives all sins. Christ died for all sins, but it's sins that you repent of. Here's your third thing, bitterness. Bitterness destroys. Verse 15, see that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. Root of bitterness is in quotes in your Bible. If you have the ESV, that's what I'm reading from. Roots of bitterness is in quotes because it is a quote from an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy warning the children of Israel not to let idolatry grow among them because idolatry, like a poisonous weed, will infiltrate their whole garden. Now, what struck me as I read this passage are the consequences of this. That there are a lot of people who are going to miss the grace of God, not because they've sinned in such a way that God can't forgive them. That's never the case. They're going to miss the grace of God because they're just distracted from it by idolatry. Idolatry is usually not fixated on bad things. Idolatry is when something becomes too important to you, becomes more important than God. You know, I've told you that the word in, in, in Hebrew for idolatry, or the word, the word for glory, is the word kabod. And kabod literally means weight. 
To make something an idol is to give it too much weight, to give it more weight in your life than God has. It's when a good thing becomes a God thing and so turns into a bad thing. It is when money becomes your obsession. It is when the approval of people becomes your obsession. It is when your children, your marriage, finding romance, finding a new marriage, finding a good marriage becomes your obsession. It is the love of the first place. Here is how you tell that that root of idolatry is growing in you and corrupting and destroying you. What dominates your thoughts? What dominates your thoughts? What upsets you? What makes you jealous? What's made you bitter? Because those things are all smoke from a fire that go back to your idolatry. It is when these things, this root that is growing and it is destroying, idolatry is subtle, it's not the kind of thing that you can stand up here and just point and say, you and you and you. It's the kind of thing that is subtle, but it is very, very serious because it keeps people from grabbing hold of the grace of God. It is literally choking the life out of you. It is spreading to your children. It is spreading to your friends, and it is causing you to fail to grab hold of the grace of God because you just don't see the need for it. Our enemy's primary weapon against you is not unbelief it is distraction and he distracts through these roots of idolatry that grow among the garden of faith here's number four sensual pleasures sensual pleasures see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like esau who sold his birthright for a single meal now this is an interesting image you know the story of esau okay so in genesis um isaac has two sons jacob and esau Esau is a hunter. He's a man's man, right? He drives an F-150. Jacob, not so much a man's man. He watches the cooking channel, the Food Network. Um, you know, he drives a little uh, uh, Mini Cooper. Um, not the kind of an Italian job, but like a, like a, like a, like a little dainty kind. And, um, and he, uh, uh, you know, so he's at home cooking, and Esau is out hunting, and Esau comes home one day, and Esau is the firstborn, so he's going to get the, the, what they call the birthright. The birthright was all the promises. It was all the inheritance. We're talking something of massive value. Esau comes home from hunting, and he's powerful hungry. And he's, he, he shot something while he's hunting, but it's going to take a while to prepare it. And so Jacob is just finished this little lentil stew that he cooked. And, and, and Esau says, man, I'm so hungry. Brother, would you give me some, give me some food? And Jacob, who was kind of crafty and a deceiver, says, yeah, I'll give you some food. I'll tell you what, I'll trade you some of this food for your birthright, which is just crazy. I mean, it's just like, you know, hey, five bucks, can I have your retirement? Um, you know, and, and, and Esau's like, oh, well, here was his reasoning. His reasoning was, you know, my birthright's not going to do me any good if I'm dead, and I'm so hungry, I feel like I'm going to die. So sure, you can have my birthright, I'm going to have a cup. Of, he traded his birthright for a cup of soup. And it was lentil soup. How gross is that? Right? And, and so he, he, you know, he, but he was so enslaved to his physical desires that he traded, he sacrificed the eternal on the altar of his stomach. And the author says, this is what a lot of people who were so enslaved to their bodily pleasures that they are kept from eternity by things like sexual immorality. That's why he brings that in there. You realize how much of our lives, especially those of you that are younger, how much of your life is dedicated to just giving yourself the physical sensations that you want? I mean, you know, um, uh, Rolling Stone magazine had an article 
uh, talking about the really good parties in Hollywood and Nashville are the parties that start about Friday at 4 o'clock and end about Monday at 2 in the afternoon. And these are the parties that are filled with great food, sex, alcohol, ecstasy. And you think thousands of dollars and people's whole lives are spent just trying to create sensations in them. Are sensations really that valuable in light of eternity? Are creature comforts? Is sexual immorality, are just, just tingly things in your body, is that really worth your soul? Pascal, a philosopher, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, used an image on this, and I, I give it to you all the time. He said the tragedy with most people, his image was, he said, it's like they're barreling toward a cliff in a, you know, a horse-drawn carriage. They know the cliff is coming. They know it's there. They know that their death is right in front of them and is a, a few minutes away. He said, but then they start to distract themselves with what they've got to eat in the, in the carriage, the pretty scenery that is around the carriage. He said, how crazy for a person to actually live that way. He said, but that's what people do when they know that their death is coming. They know eternity is there, and they're addicted to living in the right house, having the sexual encounters they want to have, because they just are addicted to physical sensations. They're like Esau, who sold his eternity for a cup of soup. It is sensual pleasures that erode those things. God created sensual pleasures. He wants you, he created, wants you to have them to the fullest. But some of you are so distracted by them, it keeps you from ever grabbing hold of the grace of God and surrendering yourself to God. Here's the last one. Inattention. Inattention, verse 25. See to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. The author then says, he says, imagine, basically, he says, imagine you were there that day on that mountain when the Israelites came up to the mountain, and here's a mountain that is filled with thunder and lightning. God is on the mountain. And God starts speaking out of the mountain. Now, imagine you were there. Do you think it's likely that anybody was like, hey, would you cut it out? Would you turn that down? I'm trying to concentrate here. I'm trying to do something. Would God, could you be quiet? No, nobody put God on the back burner. God was speaking out of a mountain, so they stopped what they were doing, and they turned and they listened. And the writer says, if that's how they paid attention to God, how much more would you listen to a God who spoke out of Calvary? That was God. That was God who had not surrounded himself with a perimeter and covered himself with thunder and lightning to keep you away. That was a God who took the thunder and lightning of God's judgment into himself, whose body was ripped apart for you. That was God. You know the, de the details of the crucifixion? Beaten with a cat of nine tails that would have shredded his skin. You know, the pieces of bone and glass, they say that, historians say would have, would, would have would, were often, they would likely lodge themselves into a rib and often just rip a rib off of a man's frame during the beating. They, they tell us that it's very likely that Jesus was at least partially disemboweled after that beating. Isaiah says he didn't even look like a man when they got done. Then he was strung up naked, had nails put in his hands and his feet, taking into himself the punishment for your sin. And you just put it on the back burner. You treat it like a secondary thought, like it's not that important, like something you'll get to it later. How possibly could you hope to escape if God was speaking in Christ and you just thought it wasn't that important? You just thought it was something that you could just deal with later. That was God. And I would say that most of you listening to me right now at any of our campuses, you believe that that was God. 
If that is God, do you realize how important the message that he was giving to you was? And that message is that Christ died for sinners and there's no possible hope apart from him to go to heaven, that you have to receive what he has done. J.C. Ryle, one of my preaching heroes, listen to this. It is a lack of seriousness that keeps most people from heaven. The carefree way that they go through life. God is serious in observing us. Christ is serious in his death for us. The Spirit is serious in striving with us. The truths of God are serious. Our spiritual enemies are serious in their endeavors to ruin us. Poor lost sinners are serious in hell. Why then would we not be serious too? I'm not up here each week telling jokes, entertaining people, giving them a religious pep talk. I am trying to save your life. And I hope you don't think that's a too important sense of my own job. I'm just saying that it is the word of God given to people by which they find eternal security in him. It is God speaking. We don't have music up here that's designed to entertain and keep you, you know, like, oh, I like that. It is there to point you to the unspeakable riches that have been given by God in Christ. And if you ignore, how can we possibly escape Hebrews 2, 3, if we neglect so great a salvation that God has given? Why don't you bow your heads and let me, let me pray. I wonder in this moment, at all of our campuses, I wonder if you just need to repent. I know repent's an old-fashioned word, but repent just means that you say to God, God, you're right and I'm wrong. You're right, I'm wrong. You're in charge. To believe. Believe in the Bible means that you believe that Jesus did what he said he did. And what he said he did was pay the full penalty for all your sin. Everything, everything that could condemn us, everything that could keep us out of heaven, Jesus took into his own body. And he offers us forgiveness, salvation as a free gift to all who will believe and receive it. If you've never repented, if you've never believed, I would invite you in this moment right now. It's not a magic prayer. But it is in your heart's surrendering to Jesus and receiving the gift. Right now, right now. Lord Jesus, I receive it. Can I tell you that your eternal life depends on that. The eternal life of your children depends on that, if the Bible is true. Right now, where you are, you receive. You receive. Believers, you might be praying for people around you, but I want you to make sure that you think through those five things. Where is our enemy eroding your faith? Where is he destroying your capacity to see God? Where is he destroying your ability to believe? Father, I pray that you would renew our faith and open our eyes to the glory of Jesus. Holy Spirit, move what you are doing in us, what you are doing in our friends and our children, would you continue it in these moments, we pray in Christ's name.